When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good afternoon, everyone, everyone, and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Andreas Steno Larsen, sending to you live Tuesday, September 27th. It's been a uh, crazy day with a lot of action in my backyard here in uh, Denmark, in Europe. Um, we've had a sabotage of the uh, pipelines running through the Baltic Sea. Um, so far, we don't really know who's behind this sabotage, but uh, today we're going to ask the question whether the energy Energy crisis just got a lot worse due to this action in the Baltic Sea. And uh, I have the perfect guest with me today to answer that exact question because Tony Greer is uh, with us, one of the best guys I know in the energy and commodity space. Uh, Tony, good to see you. Too kind of you, Andreas. Too kind. How you doing, man? Uh, not too good today, to be honest, after this action in my backyard in the Baltic Sea, but I wanted your take as well on uh, what happened. Uh, I mean, we obviously have a lot of repercussions to discuss in terms of uh, the market pricing of, of energy, but uh, take us through what's been on your radar today with all of this action surrounding the pipelines in the uh, Baltic Sea. Yeah, it's all it's been all about, you know, bond dislocations and pipelines blowing up in the news today. Right, Andreas? Um you know, the pipeline story, I can't tell you what happened to it, but I could tell you how the market reacted, you know, and I can spot a two sigma rally in Dutch TTF natural gas prices and a two sigma rally in jet fuel based on a headline from a mile away. So that kind of set the tone, you know, a little bit for the commodity space in that the Bloomberg commodity index is kind of breaking down technically. But today we're seeing a big bounce off of the lows with this pipeline explosion. I think it leads, you know, through the read through is that, you know, people don't really know where the next set of supply is going to come from, therefore, you know, increasing the price. And that's about as much as I could say, you know, the U.S. energy market now is grappling, you know, first with the economic slowdown story and then also with, uh, you know, the net zero push behind the scenes. Um, you know, the U.K. just today, I think, said came out and said that they were going to be on all electric power. Um, you know, by 2030 and, and a really, really bold statement like that, um, you know, and you see the pound market coming apart and you see the gilt market coming apart. And today you see, you know, commensurate dislocation in the U.S. bond market with a two sigma fall in TLT, you know, the um, sort of mid range bond ETF. We had U.S. 10 year yields touch 4 percent today. Um, you know, so that signal is still really percolating that inflation is not going away. You know, stock markets are trading accordingly. The S&P rotated itself, led by technology and then natural resources all the way down to the June lows. Today, not shockingly, with the yields going higher, we pierced the June lows on the downside. And we're seeing sort of shades of that great rotation yet again, which has been spinning its wheels where the Bloomberg Commodities Index is still outperforming technology stocks 
in a market where yields are going higher. So, you know, that's the kind of rotation that we're seeing, Andreas. Who knows how this Nord Stream pipeline situation is going to sort itself out? You know, the only thing that I can think of is that they just broke up Putin's um, natural resources for rubles machine. Um, and, you know, I don't like that it puts him in an uncomfortable position to perhaps act erratically or something like that. And I feel like, you know, the the global sort of geopolitical risk meter is very quietly sort of notching higher with events like this taking place. I mean, this is a pretty serious sabotage event where both sides of the people, uh, people on both sides of the pipeline lose dramatically, right? You're not getting your heat in Europe if you're on their side and you're not um, getting any rubles for your natural resources on this side, which is going to have a dramatic spillover effects that I'm not near smart enough to figure out. So I keep my eyes on the tape and keep listening, uh, you know, to opinions of people like you to try to figure out what's going to happen next. Yeah, it's a really tricky question to answer, Tony. Um, I think we can bring up a chart on the gas flows to Europe, uh, chart three, Brian. Uh, so, I mean, before this sabotage happened, um, the Nord Stream pipeline was essentially already closed uh, due to the ongoing conflict in, in Ukraine. But what worries me the most is that if someone is able to blow up the pipeline in the Baltic Sea, the Nord Stream pipeline, who knows whether that exact same country will be able to blow up other supply pipelines to Europe. I mean, that is essentially my take on why the market is so scared of this uh, event um, in, 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 in the reaction that we see in, for example, TTF natural gas pricing today, Tony. But I mean, given all of this uncertainty, how do you maneuver the market these days too? Uh, cut my risk down. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm really happy to have, um, you know, my, my, my system was kind of served me well in this pullback in that, you know, I, you know, I participate in large scale commodity slides through support when I'm long and I get out. Um, you know, even though from where I, you know, got into those trades that might be taking profits, they're huge drawdowns and you're still having to sell things on weakness, but you have to keep yourself in a position to stay alive right now. You have to have dry powder for when that opportunity really falls into your lap. And I think you have to be looking forward to, you know, those absurd dislocations where you can say, okay, this is where, you know, I'd rather put some money to work here and take a shot you know, considering some of the move might get stretched to the downside or upside, whatever it is. And you have to be sitting there with no risk on to be able to think clearly to see those opportunities. And then number two, to be able to act clearly and swiftly enough to be able to capitalize on them when the time is right. So that's really my thing right now, Andreas, is having, you know, large amounts of dry powder um, and some really strong long-term views lingering around in my head while they reprice oil through the 200-day moving average, you know, while energy stocks pull back into the moving average uh, sort of trend line support levels, they get extremely oversold down here. You know, these in the past, these have been the opportunities, the only opportunities that you've had to get in on this energy trend. So it might be something to think about now as well. Um, especially with the literal attack on supply in certain places. You know, to me, that's just evidence of this sort of fifth generation warfare that we're in the middle of now, where we really don't know, you know, the time frame that the warfare is taking place. We're having these, you know, huge exogenous shocks that are like really head spinning headlines, like, you know, 
Prime Minister Abe getting shot in Japan and, you know, the headlines like we see with the Nord Stream pipeline. And now the next one will be how everybody's going to react to this and who's going to pin the blame on who and how the Stratego, Stratego board is going to change once again. So, you know, like I said, Andreas, the only way that you can participate in a market like this is have a sort of balanced book where, you know, you've got a leg up on a trade that goes either way and you can participate at, you know, extreme levels and high levels of volatility. Traditionally, these are the times that we want to be sticking bids into the stock market when the VIX rises up in the 30s so that when it bleeds back into the 20s and there's some sort of a resolution for the markets, you can participate in that bounce. It's just really scary to stick bids into the market now when you don't know what the head next headline is going to be. Yeah, tend to agree. Tony, one of the things that I've done, um, seen from European soil is to uh, exchange all of my excess cash to US dollars. Uh, we've seen a meltdown of the uh, UK sterling. We've seen a meltdown of the euro. We've seen a meltdown of the Japanese yen. How do you view this um, obvious currency crisis outside of the US seen from the US soil? Yeah, I feel like it's just telling me to, you know, beware of be, look for more volatility in your markets, mm. right? Because those are the real those are the markets that are being driven by massive flows right now in reaction to the headlines that we're seeing. Um, you know, like you can't take a bond dislocation like we're seeing today lightly, you know, especially while these the yields and the rates markets are very clearly on a beeline to higher levels. Right. We don't know where they're going to top out yet. They're still very much in motion. And it looks to me like two year yield is bound for something more like six percent before this is over. So, you know, the rate of change is everything. Obviously, right now we're in really, really high a period of really high volatility where everything is spiking in volatility from bonds to currencies to equities to commodities. And it's at the point where it's you know practically impossible to keep track of, quite honestly. And to get the stories down and understand why that's happening and, you know, pair up uh, what's happening with what's going on technically and make smart decisions. You know, I'm kind of trying to eyeball natural gas right now, Andreas, on its 200 day moving average where, you know, if this Nord Stream story isn't a bullish enough story to have it hold the 200 day moving average, we might see a serious slide in U.S. natural gas prices just based on technicals. You know, breaking down through the 200-day moving average here at 650, there's no support levels until around $4. So I'm wondering how the commodity complex might hold up in case there's a 40% pullback in natural gas. So I'm trying to think one or two steps ahead in a few of the commodity markets to kind of see where the pivot levels are and to see where some of the weakness may be and make sure that I'm not in the way of that hurricane that is likely to hit the screen. I've been leaning short in the uh, natural gas space recently as well, but uh, I find it a little bit tricky after today's action in the Baltic Sea, to be very honest here. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Tony, I wanted to pick your brain uh, on another topic of interest um, because what we see right now in yield space is um, simply amazing. I mean, I don't think we've seen such a repricing in such a short time span uh, ever in my adulthood, at least. Um, so what do you make of this move in, in yield space? Do we have sort of a credibility crisis brewing? Um, is it a credibility crisis among politicians, this one? You know, it sure does rhyme with, you know, the bottom suddenly falling out of the U.S. Treasury market. All right. You know, you can't ignore the fact that we've got new leadership. We've got new what we've been identifying quite clearly as world economic foundation influenced batshit crazy energy policy. Right. We're seeing across the pond, you know, what the risks are and how, you know, what what we're potentially going to be facing when we take the next step towards carbon neutral and net zero. And, you know, that this is just going to be, you know, I feel like today's, uh, you know, moves in natural gas, you know, those large magnitude moves higher in Dutch TTF and in jet fuel, you know, those are reminders that this crisis is going to be ongoing and, and with us for a while, unfortunately. You know, it doesn't go back in the bottle when the Federal Reserve says we're going to kneecap the economy so we can take the bite out of the inflation numbers heading into the election. You know, it's a little bit different story for the commodities that, you know, there's natural flows coming into every day, natural demand for. And there's still, no matter how you slice it, scarcity stories all over the commodity space. So I'm going to be really interested to see if the Bloomberg Commodities Index is able to back off meaningfully while these stories continue to persist of quite obvious and serious supply disruptions, you know, based on, um, you know, kinetic warfare type of action and tons of uncertainty. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm as anxious to you to see how this is going to shake out. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have pivoted my book to a level where now I'm kind of net short, loaded with cash. I'm in the hunt. You know, I'm looking to cover, you know, stocks on a big move lower and just take the money off the table and see what happens next. But it feels to me, Andreas, if you take a huge step back from the screens, you know, this is still the markets reacting to the post-pandemic response. You know, everything about it is, is sort of stuff that goes through your mind when you see the Fed double its balance sheet from $4 trillion to $8 trillion, And you say, wow, do people understand what this is going to mean one day for commodity prices, for hard asset prices? We just goosed money supply 40% in one year. We are trashing the U.S. currency. And even though it's performing against the other currencies on the board right now, I think we're seeing all of the other destruction that's coming alongside with the weakening of fiat in general, based on all of that, you know, insane deficit spending and taking all those, um, you know, toxic assets onto the balance sheet to try to right the ship in the S&P again. So I know that's kind of a mouthful, but I feel like, you know, when we were going through that back then, it was like, you know, we're going to be sorry one day and we're looking at the screen at one day looks what one day looks like. And we're going to be living through this, certainly through the rest of the year. I wanted to show a few maps of the situation in the Baltic Sea. It, it's probably a bit tricky to follow that situation from across the pond. Uh, so yeah. let's bring up chart one here. Um, it, it's basically a, a map of the pipelines uh, involved today. The um, dark red pipeline is the Nord Stream pipeline. There are obviously two pipelines uh, by now. Uh, but I mean, 
the right, uh, sorry, the red pipeline blew up today. Uh, that was what happened. But the timing was extremely interesting because the light blue pipeline, the so-called Baltic pipeline from Norway to Poland, opened today. Um, so it's a pipeline designed to bring natural gas from Norway to the eastern part of Germany and to Poland. Uh, and I mean, it's more or less running through the exact same waters in, in Denmark where I uh, live right now. So I mean, this is a really interesting backdrop because I mean, obviously, if if Russia, let's assume that Russia is behind this. I don't know it to be to be brutally honest. Let's assume that Russia is behind this um, uh, pipeline sabotage. Well, they can obviously strike the light blue pipeline as well in case, right? Uh, so we don't know what's coming up next in terms of the supply of natural gas to Europe. And one thing that I can assure you is that if we start seeing sabotage on the Norwegian pipelines to Europe, uh, the second biggest supply of natural gas to Europe uh, outside of Russia, well, then we are in for absolute mayhem in the European energy market, Tony. Yeah. Okay, let me just ba- uh, bounce that back to you, Andreas. Why would, you know, why explain to me why you think Russia might have sabotaged their own pipeline when they can and they can and already have already turned the spigot off? Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if you look at it, the most uh, obvious incentives are held by the U.S. in terms of blowing this pipeline up. Um, I have to agree. I have to agree with that. But um, I also think that the Russians have incentives uh, of doing so. Uh, One could be that um, we basically already now discuss whether this could be the US. I mean, they could uh, essentially start um, sort of intervening with the European policymakers if they start to to create a discussion internally in Europe, whether this was uh, done by the US or whether it was done by Russia. So I think it's a pretty interesting scenario to uh, to watch, uh, given that we already now have an internal debate in Europe, whether it's, it's um, a sabotage conducted by the Russians or the US. Uh, so from that uncertainty perspective, I could see that they have incentives. The second thing is that um, from a supply perspective, I'd say that the Next step for Russia is basically to sabotage the uh, deliveries from Norway to Europe if they want to sabotage the supplies even further to Europe, um, because essentially we are already very close to zero flows from Russia to Europe. So they don't have that bargaining power left um, since they are already at zero, right? So if they could meddle with the Norwegian supplies to Europe, then I guess they could um, sort of make the supply situation even worse in Europe than what it already is. But uh, again, totally very tricky to call who's behind this. Very tricky to call, Andreas. Like I said, I'm going to stick to watching the markets and interpreting what they do because I have no idea what's going on with the pipelines. No, and and honestly, I don't think that we will find out anytime soon um, who's behind this. So, um, I mean, let's see uh, whether we get any uh, sort of official uh, messages from from Germany, Denmark, and Sweden uh, tomorrow. Uh, they are obviously investigating what what happened today. Um, Tony, I, I wanted to play a uh, soundbite uh, for you, uh, actually, in relation to this European energy crisis. It's uh, from an interview uh, from our brand new Make or Break series. Uh, I interviewed Surya Jayanti, uh, who's the former head of, uh, of the energy unit at the uh, uh, U.S. Embassy in, in Ukraine um, earlier. Uh, and um, she is very vocal that Europe will now have to own its own energy crisis. So let's listen to her and get back to that discussion. All right. The fundamentals for an energy crisis 
were in place already. A lack of diversification in energy mixes and over-reliance on one source, a lack of sufficient investment in, in new technologies, a, a completely poorly thought through rejection of nuclear, etc. Putin has functioned as, as the catalyst that has pushed the rest of the world off the energy cliff. But I don't, I don't think it's reasonable at this point to say that Putin is the energy crisis and that Russia is the energy crisis. I think we have to own, we, the rest of the world, have to own our energy crisis now. And that means that it, it will go forward with or without Russia. Russia can make it worse. Russia can make it better. But the energy crisis is. And that also means that Russia has less leverage than it used to. So uh, it's not that I think Russia's lost the energy war. It's that I think there are more players at the table and Russia has misplayed its hand, but it still has a few cards. You can watch the entire interview with Saria Gianti uh, at the Real Vision platform already today from this new make or break series, a must watch if you ask me. But back to you, Tony. I mean, uh, Saria is pretty clear here. Europe needs to own this energy situation itself. What's your take on sort of the medium term ramifications of this energy crisis? It's certainly going to put some heat on the World Economic Foundation. You know, it's going to, uh, I would imagine that this kind of slows down rather than speeds up the transition to carbon neutral. You know, it's, um, I feel like that plan has been sort of getting some light shined on it. And I feel like the plan is finally on a collision course with physics where, you know, eventually, you know, maybe, maybe it won't happen. Maybe they will have plenty of gas, but this doesn't, This type of event doesn't get you excited about Europe having enough gas for next winter or the future winters or for this crisis to sort of calm down anytime soon. So, you know, that's my only read is that it feels like it's going to be with us. It feels like it's ongoing. It feels like it is a sort of, you know, upside commodity spike type of action going on unless you know, the, the global conflict or the, you know, the back and forth gets so bad that everybody decides that we need to be in a further all asset de-risking or something like that. But I, I don't think that you can take your eye off of the U.S. Treasury market. I don't think you can take your eye off any of the bond markets that continue to dislocate lower around the world and sort of have that be your, your um, You know, thermometer for how hot it is out there in the markets and how much risk is having to be taken off the books. So from here on in, Andreas, I'm not sure if I answered your question. I think I may have um, ambled a little bit, but that's how we're trying to stay alive right now. Yeah, absolutely fair, Tony. Uh, I mean, if you look at the current sentiment in markets, bonds are selling off, equities are selling off at the same time. Usually you have a bit of wind, wind shelter in bonds when when uh, shit hits the fan in equities, uh, to be brutally honest, right, Tony? Uh, yeah. But currently you don't. Um, so what do you make of this complete meltdown in correlations? I mean, it's it's more or less impossible to find anything to own right now. Yeah, it is. And so that's how I guess you're getting towards a point where, you know, you got to be looking for the next, um, you know, short, short covering rally, right? Like that, that is probably that may be the next reflex that happens, but it doesn't seem like it's ready to do that yet, right? We haven't felt any kind of a capitulation on the downside. I'm still looking for that, you know, you still have the factor in your mind where, 
You know, there was more retail buying, um, you know, last year than in the past 10 years combined. And all of it was done near the S&P highs. And it doesn't feel to me like, um, sorry, we may have just lost my video there. It doesn't feel to me like we found that bottom just yet, Andreas. Fair enough, Tony. Um, I wanted to ask you in uh, in relation to the energy trade, uh, whether it's still a crowded trade. It's been an ongoing discussion for the past couple of months, whether this long energy trade was already too crowded, uh, given the outlook for an energy crisis in Europe and then elsewhere around the globe. Do you have a, a, a strong feeling on um, on the positioning in energy space right now? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's pretty clear that there is the, the open interest has indicated in WTI by consistently falling that there's not a large speculative, um, you know, 800 pound gorilla crawling around out there. So in WTI, there's not a big spec long of any kind. If anything, I think this move below the moving averages has probably attracted a lot of CTA shorts that are piling on on weakness and they're reading the headlines about the coming recession and they know that the energy market is a big favorite out there right for people that are the you know putting on the anti ESG plays um you know and getting long fossil fuel companies so i think what happened was you know when you have a S&P pullback everybody looks around and says what sectors on the year are still staying alive and up on the year and they probably plowed a little bit of money into those energy and natural resources sectors only to run into, you know, this frying pan of the hawkish FOMC that we just walked out of where, you know, you no matter what, you had to adjust your bets after that. And they got to the natural resources length that was in the market. And I think they probably washed a lot of that out now. So, you know, with this move below the moving averages and a lot of the industrial and uh, natural resources ETFs, I feel like we're getting closer to a capitulative level there because I don't think that the market was long enough for them to go down dramatically further from here. I'm kind of waiting to figure that out right now. So I'm looking into these sort of secondary and tertiary support lines for, for help. I'm trying to still trade the uptrend in those sectors, and I'm kind of keeping my eye on the great rotation as commodities continue out to outperform technology. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We have a uh, superb question from uh, one of our viewers um, asking you uh, whether to reflect a positive view in energy via commodities or via energy stocks. What's your take on the difference between sort of reflecting that view in directly commodity space or in equity space? Yeah, I'm a bigger fan of being long um, the stocks right now. You know, at least I can make a case that some of them are holding their trend and they're pulling back into really strong support. Um, you know, I, I've been cleaned out of all of my oil commodity length because as a technician, I am officially out of reasons to be long. You know, you can you can make your case all you want about the fundamentals. You can make your case all you want about how tight the markets were for quite a while. And unfortunately, as we've learned many times before as commodity traders, tight markets don't necessarily have to translate into higher prices. So now that I think the major factor in the oil market is the SPR release, 
you know, we're going to see what happens when we get towards the end or we'll see what the next move is for the SPR release. But to me, that's been the only seller in town. You know, that's been the only real seller of WTI in town. I think it speaks to the dislocation between the paper markets and the physical markets that Prince Abdulaziz has alluded to. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at, you know, Saudi Arabian crude oil prices, um, you know, Arabian light is still a $95 item. Um, you know, so that, wait, is that right, the right price? I want to make sure I have that. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's still a $95 item. So prices across the pond are holding in there in the oil markets. You know, we'll see how that plays out. But right now, Andreas, I'm just sort of just trying to brace myself for massive volatility and look for a capitulative move that we can lean on on the downside for, for a quick, you know, flip trade on the upside. But to me right now, everything is a short-term trade. You know, everything is clip your wins, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, sell profitable trades, you know, be really careful with losing trades and just try to keep your head above water right now. Uh, we also have a question on the potential sanctions of the Ukrainian-owned naphtha gas company. And I can try and, and sort of uh, summarize the situation around that company because um, what we've seen earlier today is that Gazprom, the uh, Russian state-owned natural gas company, has sort of um, cited the risk that they will have to put sanctions on naphtha gas, which is the Ukrainian equivalent of, of Gazprom. Uh, naphtha gas is sort of the transit company for natural gas running through Ukraine to the rest of, of Europe. Uh, and if we bring up chart three again, Brian, um, we uh, we have the flow situation in Europe. Uh, and as you can see, that um, gray scaled area is the supply running via Ukraine to uh, the rest of, of Europe still. So I mean, this is a downside risk to the supply situation in Europe once again, if the Kremlin in, in uh, Moscow decides to to sanction uh, the naphtha gas company uh, of, of Ukraine. So once again, Tony, bad news for supply. That's all that we, uh, that seems to be the common theme is bad news for supply. Yeah. Uh, so again, let me just reiterate it. Uh, I've been leaning short in natural gas given the uh, amount of news that we've received in a negative direction for supply today, then I'm basically tempted to move in the, um, in the other direction. Tony, if we, if we look at the potential trading range for crude oil, uh, we get a bunch of questions uh, from the audience in relation to what we've seen lately in, uh, in the crude oil price action. Uh, why don't you take us through uh, your view from a technical perspective uh, on the price action? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just calling it up here so that I can look at it um, in front of me. We've got a situation where it's curled below each of the moving, all of the moving averages, Andreas. Um, you know, now at this point, I think you have to start looking for either the $60 lows, which was kind of a double bottom from August and December of last year. Um, that was the price that it launched to $130 from. So $60 is really kind of like the next you know, if we make it to the bottom of the range, that would make sense for me for it to be the bottom of the range for now. I doubt it gets much below there. That's still a ways away. However, on the upside, you know, you've got moving averages curling, curling over and bearing down on the price to the point that, you know, the 50-day moving average is up at $90. That's probably a sale the first time up there. So, you know, we could probably call the range 75-bit at 90 until that breaks, Andreas, and then I'll look for that $60 load to come into play. Um, you know, maybe if she starts reversing on the upside, even if she gets through 90, she's got the 200 day, the 100 day above that between 95 and 100. 
a lot, a lot of technical climbing to do. I would imagine that it takes, you know, a pretty serious kind of event or headline to get it back up working through those levels. But it seems like um, we are going to price in that economic slowdown that the Federal Reserve is going to re to arrange right now in order to take, you know, inflation to seriously and finally start fighting it. You know, the short term paper markets have taken it very seriously. And until they stop, it's going to be a really, really tough road for risk. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment, Tony. Um, I wanted to sort of summarize on, on today's discussion. Uh, first of all, we've received almost a pamphlet of bad news in relation to European energy supply, in particular in terms of natural gas, both this story from the Baltic Sea with the blow up of the Nord Stream pipelines, but secondly also this potential sanctioning of the uh, Ukrainian state-owned natural gas company, both would uh, sort of uh, curtail negative news for the uh, supply situation around natural gas in Europe. Secondly. It's very tricky to have all the answers today, Tony. Um, I mean, from a technical perspective, you don't get a lot of support in in, in terms of the long oil bet right now, um, even though the fundamentals still sort of uh, support the long-term positive story. So you would rather prefer to belong in equity space, in the energy equity space, rather than in, in the physical space. Is that a fair reflection? Yeah, yeah. The physical space to me is, you know, well, the paper markets, let's call it that, yeah. right? Like the, the paper markets have curled over and, you know, I, I'm going to have to wait for some type of capitulation on the downside before I could get excited. You know, at least the equities are pulling back to within trend. A lot of them are still, you know, ExxonMobil still above its 200-day moving average. Conoco still above its 200-day moving average. So, you know, these are, these are companies that you can still wait for a dip to, to happen, you know, a little bit even further. So, you know, I'm just trying to play it that way and stay above water right now, Andreas. It's a really dangerous shooting gallery out there. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I wanted to conclude with a, a meme again today. Uh, I find it a little bit difficult to laugh about the situation given what's uh, been ongoing in the Baltic Sea. But nonetheless, I've uh, given it a shot here. Uh, I mean, this boomer on the meme uh, looks at his portfolio and he gets sort of a feeling of the 70s back. And I think that's a very fair reflection. I mean, a very strong supply shock on the energy front. And um, quite a mayhem in both bonds and equities at the same time right now. Really tricky times to maneuver. Um, Tony, a great pleasure to host you again. Thank you for joining us. Great job, Andreas. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the explanations of the pipeline machinations. Very helpful. Thank you, Tony. Uh, I will be back again tomorrow with uh, Darius Dale guesting the show. So I hope to see you all again tomorrow. Thank you very much for watching. The Sri Lankan Prime Minister's house set alight. The first is authoritarianism. The second is corruption. The FOMC is strongly resolved to bring inflation down to 2%. Uh, home builders are abandoning homes. Massive protests going on here. We're going to see a material impact here on growth and indeed on earnings, which my colleague Change is happening and you can fear it. But you're not going to stop it. There are really only two countries in Europe that have managed to maintain a replacement level birth rate, France and Sweden. This is the biggest bubble in the history of the world, and you have no clue. It's all herd mentality. It's the same as the property market. What happens over the next few months could define what happens over the next few years. So we want to make sure that you understand why. You've probably realized that we really have been listening to you.
What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 